pray with me? Father, the most certain and sure thing in this world is you and your word. And when you tell us that you are going to finish what you started inside of us, that when we came to faith and we trusted in Christ, you made a promise to us that you would bring that to the day of completion, that you would bring us to yourself and that you would preserve us and to keep us. And so I am so thankful that we did not earn our salvation by good works, nor can we lose it by bad works because it is your promise to all of those who place their faith in the crucified and risen Jesus. God, as we turn to your word, we look at the story of Exodus and we are learning so much about this nomadic group of people who are just leaving slavery for hundreds of years and now they're being ushered into a new promised land and they are learning so much in this transition process. God, would you train us and would you teach us? Lord, some of us need to be um, confronted. Lord, may you do that through your word and your spirit. Some of us need to be built up and encouraged. May you do that through your word and your spirit. Some of us need to be trained. We need to be taught. We need to have bad ideas taken out and replaced with good, biblical, truthful ideas about who you are and who we are. Would you do that by your word and your spirit? And so we come before you in this time. We ask all of this in the majestic and powerful name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today we begin our two-week series in Exodus chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you open up Exodus chapter 19? We're going to be in verses 4 through 6, and we're going to learn, we're going to learn in this chapter how the Israelites are going to approach God. More importantly, we're going to learn how God wants the Israelites to approach him. So theologians and Social scientists came to a conclusion a long time ago that I think is profoundly important for each one of us. And the conclusion is this, that dads and masculine influences develop the primary God concept for kids. That as we grow up, our primary default notion of who God is, is primarily developed by our dads and the masculine influences in our lives. So this summer I spent quite a time, quite a bit of time asking myself, so what kind of dad have I become? I just turned 40 years old doing a lot of reflection, apparently hitting a midlife crisis. What kind of dad have I become? I asked my kids uh, really pointed questions about what it's like to be the son or the daughter of Michael Fueling. And so actually this summer for the first time, I put, into, I put into words something that my heart has always known, but for the first time I was able to give vocabulary to it. Here it is. I will never be able to be everything my kids need me to be. I will never be able to be everything my kids need, to be, need me to be. And let me tell you, this drives me insane because I want to be the best dad in the entire world. But there's a beautiful truth right behind this, and that truth is this, that Jesus is everything my kids need him to be. He is everything they need. And that when I fall short as a father and I do things that create broken or wrong God concepts in them, the blood of Christ is so gracious. He covers my errors, and he has given my kids so much grace after grace after grace. I've had to release myself from the burden of being the perfect dad who creates the perfect God concept in my kids because guess what? We are all flawed. We're all broken. 
And our kids, ultimately, they need to have their God concept ultimately formed by God himself. But here's what I can, I can tell you, that dads and masculine influences, we do create this default template in our kids for how they relate to God. So let me give you a couple of examples. If you have a kid who is profoundly disrespectful to a parent or authority, I can pretty much guarantee you that you're going to have a kid whose default approach to God is fairly disrespectful. If you have a kid who is petrified of their parents, I can pretty much guarantee you that, that I'm going to be able to show you a kid who approaches God with a spirit of hesitance and maybe even fear. Now, one of the most important things that we as dads and masculine influences get to teach our kids is how they can approach God, how they can relate to God on a personal level. I'm going to break this down for you into three specific categories. Here's the first category. Proximity. How close can I get physically, emotionally, and relationally until it's dangerous? How close can I get physically, relationally, emotionally, until it's dangerous? So what happens is by the the way our kids know to approach us, it develops in them this concept of how they can approach God. Let's look at the second area. Perspective. What does he think of me? Is he irritated with me? Does he enjoy me? And so by the way we relate to our dads and masculine influences, we actually take this and we transfer this to God. Some people, they know they are irritating to their fathers and the men in their life. So when they approach God, they approach God almost as if they are in inconvenience, which by the way is not God's heart for any one of his children who has placed his faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the third one, purpose. Why did you make me? Why am I here? Why, why do I exist? And so one of, the, one of a dad's greatest opportunities is to discover what God has put into their children, pull it out, and call it out. So that when we go before God in his word, we are already prepared to hear that God designed us and made us and called us to himself and that he has a specific plan and purpose for us. We are not an accident, but we go to God with confidence that he has intention and purpose for our lives. Now, before we go any further, I want to be really, really, really gracious to the moms and dads who are watching and listening. I want to say this again. No parent is able to do a perfect job. No parent will ever be perfect at this. We are sinners, just like our children who have fallen short of the glory of God, and we are being redeemed as we go. The blood of Christ covers your sins. And so in your deficiency, in my deficiency, I want to just share with you four things before we get to Exodus 19 that you can do with your kids to help cover some of your weaknesses. Number one, give them a simple and pure gospel. The gospel is so beautiful because it tells us that God doesn't love us because we're good or good enough or perform, but he loves us because he has chosen to love us. He has promised to love us. That our relationship with our moms and our dads and and the influences in our life aren't contingent on whether or not we behave a certain way, but they love us unconditionally. When we proclaim to them a pure gospel, when sometimes we actually do maybe love some people in our life conditionally, um, what the pure gospel does is it reminds them that when we sinfully love with conditions, God never does. His love is pure and perfect and unconditional to his children. 
The second thing we need to do is give our kids the word of God. So when I was in high school, um, I believed a lot of things about God. Some of them were really good. Some of them were really wrong. As I began to teach God's word, as I began to study God's word and to get into God's word, I realized that I had some really great ideas of who God was. And those were reinforced. I also realized that I had some really broken ideas of who God was. And the word of God uh, corrected my mind and helped me form a correct God's concept about who he is and how I should be approaching and relating to him on a personal level. Number one is a simple and pure gospel. Number two is we give them God's word. Number three is we give them healthy, godly adult examples. So they can see other men and women who love God, who are older, who can influence them. And we can show them by example, not just us, what it looks like for them to relate to and approach authority in their life. And then here's the fourth one. We call our children to personally place their faith in Jesus so that they can receive the Holy Spirit and learn what it means to be in a relationship with God. This is one of the most important things because we can teach our kids everything, but they will never be able to approach God and relate to him on a personal level until they personally trust in Jesus Christ, crucified for their sins and resurrected from the dead. Now, Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. Israel has been freed from slavery in Egypt. They are on their way to the promised land. And here's what's happening. Their God concept is completely broken. And what God has to do, and he's going to do in Exodus 19, is he's going to reframe their God concept. Because this people cannot go into the promised land with all of its blessings unless they are prepared. If you give somebody who is unprepared, unbelievable riches, the riches will crush them. And so what God has to do, he has to take 40 years while the people of Israel wander in the desert to prepare them and to make sure that this people is ready for the blessing and the privilege of the promised land. Everything over these 40 years is geared at preparing them for their future. And I want you to catch this. This is so important. In order for them to be God's people— They must first learn how to relate to God correctly. So here's the question for both Israel and the question for all of you who are listening. How do you relate to God? So in this chapter, we're going to be taught two unchanging truths. This week, we're going to be looking at God as our Father. And next week, we're going to be looking at God and all of his power as the almighty sovereign of the universe. And in order to have a right approach to God, these two things have to be held in wonderful tension, and it is not an easy tension to hold. So look at verse 4 with me. Let's remind ourselves, what do our dads and masculine influences develop? Our initial God concepts of how we relate to God in proximity, perspective, and purpose. Number one, verse 4, proximity. How close can I get? Here's what God says to the Israelites. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Now, you can imagine if God is forming their God concept. Remember, they've been in slavery for 400 plus years. Uh, They don't know a ton about Yahweh. Most of it is through oral tradition. They don't know if they can trust that. And so God is forming and shaping how they should view him. And their first real experiences with Yahweh is he is obliterating the Egyptians. I mean, he takes down their entire army right before their eyes, drowning them in the sea and freeing them. And so here's what they know. We know that he's for us, but we also know don't mess with him because he's incredibly powerful. But he doesn't stop here. I want you to to look at what happens next in verse 4. He says, You know, 
how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God, how close can I get? So my wife is a professional counselor, and it's not infrequent. In fact, some of you may have had this experience with her where uh, she'll sit down with you and she'll ask you to draw a picture. And in the picture, what you're going to draw is yourself and Jesus. And she gives no boundaries to the picture. Just draw a picture of you and Jesus. And what's really interesting, especially with kids, is to see spatially, in terms of proximity, where they put Jesus versus where they put themselves. Sometimes Jesus is far, far away, up in the clouds. And immediately this is a cue that God is distant to them. That when they pictured, when they pictured Jesus, he is spatially far away. Sometimes they put Jesus sort of next to them, like they're talking, like they're best friends. And, and this actually tells, tells her that they have some sort of closeness to him. They feel comfort to talk to him as a friend. Sometimes people will even draw Jesus, especially kids, in their hearts. And this is this idea that God is so close. He is so close, you can't get away from him. He is inside of you. His spirit dwells in you. And they have this, this love of the proximity, and it's a beautiful thing to see. So I want to ask you a question. If, if you just drew a picture of you and Jesus, where is he and where are you? How close can you get? The answer is actually found in the metaphor, and it's, a, it's an incredible metaphor. And I want to read you what one author wrote about eagles. He said this. Eagles were known to have carried their young out of the nests on their wings and taught them to fly, catching them when necessary on their outspread wings. You ever seen how big the wings of an eagle are? They're unbelievable. But I want you to catch this. This is parental imagery. So yes, Israel, I can destroy all of Egypt if I want. I can kill the firstborn sons. I can bring plagues like you've never seen. The best of their sorcery and magic and demons and false gods have nothing compared to me. So does this leave them with this default idea that they should be petrified of him? In fact, he says, no, what I want you to understand is you are fundamentally different. I am a father to you. You are my children. I want relationship with you. You're not my slaves that I abuse. You are my children whom I train and love and prepare. So every person has a primary metaphor that they use to relate to God. I want to share with you a few of these. The most common ones for Christians would be the king and the subject. And the idea is that God is the king and I'm just his loyal servant. And this is actually a really transactional relationship with God. But, but it's, it's not uncommon that I'll sit down with somebody and I'll find that this is the primary metaphor that they have in their brain that they use to relate to God. And so really what they see is, is they focus on their usefulness. Am I, am I honoring the king? Am I doing the things the king wanted? The king wants, there's like sort of this fear before love instead of love before fear. It's a really interesting approach, but I think there's a better way. Here, here's another very common metaphor that people use to relate to God. The almighty and the worm. 
You're going to find this in some really conservative traditions as well, that God is big and huge, which is true. But their identity in terms of themselves is this. I am a worm. I am not, I'm not worthy to approach you. Even after they have trusted in Christ, received the Holy Spirit, been adopted as sons, called children of God, they have the Spirit of Jesus who cries, Abba, Father, in them. There is this, I am a, a worm, and I'm just not, I'm not worthy to approach you. Which, by the way, if you have a son or a daughter whom you love, do you want them saying, Dad, I am but a worm. Now, maybe like the broken, you know, masochistic, sadistic side of you might, but, but really what you want is you want your child to be confident to come to you because you love them and you want relationship with them. And, and when you work out of this worm mentality, it's just a broken mentality. Now, here's another one. Uh, many people use the bride and the groom as a primary metaphor for how they relate to God. And what you also often find is even in some charismatic churches that what they do is that this is their primary metaphor. And so the music often becomes very sexual. Uh, it's a very interesting dynamic, becomes very intimate. And, and, and this is actually a really meaningful metaphor. It tells us how much God loves us, but it doesn't seem to be for Jesus or the New Testament authors or even the Old Testament, how we are to relate to God personally on a day-to-day basis. In fact, there seems to be a better metaphor, a more compelling metaphor. In fact, a metaphor that Jesus himself personally chose to use that Paul reiterated all throughout his writings. And that is the metaphor of a father and a son. And that this is somehow the primary metaphor that we use when we think of how we relate to God. If God is first and foremost in my brain a king, I'm going to approach with hesitance. But if he is a father, I'm going to approach, as Hebrews says, the throne of grace with confidence that he loves me. Now, is God still the king? Absolutely. But if you're the son of the king, do you get to call the dad and say, hey, dad, or do you call him, oh, master? Well, if you're a good king, your prince's son is going to call you dad. And you are going to relish in that relationship. And I think what God is doing here is he's showing them a better metaphor, a better way to see this. All the false gods that you saw in Egypt, they were abusers and slave masters. I, to you, will be your parent who loves you. I will train you. And here's what I want. I want to bring you, look at the words in verse 4, to myself. I want relationship with you, proximity with you. I want to be, as the Old Testament says, in your midst. Now I want to help you understand a theological principle here, because before Jesus— And after Jesus, proximity looked different. Before the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, proximity meant this, that God was going to be in the midst of his people. And that there would be priests who represent the people to God and prophets who represent God to the people. And you could get close. Like people came to the tabernacle or to the temple and they came around it. And there'd be people, priests who were designated, who could go into the most holy place where the very presence of God was at. But there was still this bit of distance because of sin. Now this was not meant to be permanent. In fact, this was a temporary uh, solution which would be resolved permanently by Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And and so the people of God before Jesus had access and proximity, but there was a little bit of distance. After Jesus, he has become our prophet, our priest, and our king. He is everything we need. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And here's what that communicated to all of humanity who ever trusts in Jesus. 
that when you place your faith in Jesus, God's spirit dwells in you. In fact, if we could, if there was like a temple and, and, and I had trusted in Christ and received the Holy Spirit, I would walk with confidence into that temple because my father, my heavenly father dwells in that temple. Our, our dads and our masculine influences develop not just proximity, but they develop perspective. What do you think of me? Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be, catch this, my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. God, what do you think of me? Uh, I shared with you earlier that my wife and her counseling will ask people to draw um, a picture of them and Jesus. She'll then ask a follow-up question. What does Jesus think about you? I'd phrase it like this. If you could sit down with Jesus, and he could say one sentence to you personally, what do you think he would tell you? And it's interesting to hear people's responses to this, because not only do you see how they relate to God spatially in terms of proximity, but you get to see how they think God thinks of them. Look what he says to them. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. It's like God is the king of the universe. And he's also your father, and he has access to everything. Everything. The most beautiful gems, all the treasures of the world. And he says, all of them. Compared to you, I would rather have you than all of that. You're my most treasured possession. This is really unsettling language. It's very personal language. It's very relational language. This is the kind of language that people of this day, when Exodus is being written, are not used to. This is kind of earth-shattering language. And here's what God is telling them. When you approach me, you, I want you to know I want, I want to be with you in your midst, and I love you, and you are my treasured possession. Like that changes how you relate to God. If my kid believes they are irritating to me, they're going to approach me with hesitance. But if they believe they are my treasured possession, they're going to approach me very different, with unusual confidence, with the confidence that when they come to sit on my lap, as my son and my daughters do, that I will receive them gladly because they are my treasured possession. I mean, could you imagine how difficult this would be for the Israelites, by the way? For 400 years, they felt abandoned. All of a sudden, God comes in, and then he says, I want to be your parent. I want to love you. I want to be in your midst. I want relationship with you. And I'm going to treasure you above all the things of this world. For some of them, I bet it made them really angry. And for some of them, it satisfied the deepest part of their soul that they had been waiting to hear their entire life, and they didn't even know they heard it. Uh, this is what it is for so many people who their entire life they've been trying to work and be good enough to win God's approval, and then they hear the simple, pure gospel that you will never be good enough. God is offering you his love free, not conditioned on whether you are good or bad. And it's the most satisfying thing in the world to know that you are truly, actually, unconditionally loved, and God's love for you is not conditioned on whether or not you perform. It's unbelievable. Now, before Jesus and after Jesus, God's perspective 
has not changed. In fact, I want to read to you from the book of Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. And he's actually hearkening back to this Exodus language. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery like you had in Egypt back then. There's actually something better you were given. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received, when you trusted in Christ, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. It's interesting. The primary metaphor that Paul uses to relate to God as that of a father, son, father, daughter. It doesn't mean the other ones aren't true. God is almighty. God is the king. God is the sovereign of the universe. God could obliterate you like that. But the way we primarily relate to God is as our father. He says this, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. So the spirit of God inside of us is crying out with our spirit. And he's saying, Abba, which is this intimate Aramaic term for dad or daddy. It's this really meaningful term. It's a term Jesus uses when he talks to God. He calls him Abba. It's actually an unsettling term for all the first century Jews to hear Jesus talk about God the Father in such personal language. And then verse 16 says this in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. The idea is that there is a court of law, and then there is the Spirit of God in our spirit, and they're not on the same page. And so the Spirit of God is bearing witness because our spirit is saying, do you love me? I don't think you loved me. If you loved me, you would do the following things. But the Spirit of God bears witness and testifies to our soul that we are children of God. Number three is purpose. Our dads and masculine influences, they develop our initial God concepts of how we understand our purpose in life. Look at verse six. Verse six, God says to them, he's reorienting all of their God concept, how they view him and themselves. And he says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God Why did you make me? What's my purpose? Now, we have spent a ton of time at Village Church teaching on spiritual calling and personal calling. But for every person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, your first calling is not to do something, but to be something. That God has, before he's called you to go work for him, he has called you to be a son or daughter of the Almighty. He has called you to be his child, and the Spirit of God is testifying with your spirit that you don't just have access, that he doesn't just love you, but he has purpose for you. So what do priests have? Priests have access to God. I want you to catch what he's saying to the nation of Israel. Um, Typically, what happens is only a few people have access to God. They have to go through a number of, of rituals, but God casts a vision over the nation of Israel, and he says this, the whole nation of you, I want to create a people, a treasure possession, and you're all going to have personal access to me. You are all going to have personal access to me. And this is your purpose. Your first purpose in life, I want you to catch this, is relationship with God before anything else. 
And it's not relationship with some distant king. It's not relationship with an almighty that you should be petrified of, even to walk into his presence. Is relationship, first and foremost, with God as your father, who is also the king, who is also the almighty, who has covenanted, promised himself to you to treat you as a son and not an enemy, despite how good or bad you may or may not perform or be in your life. Before Jesus, after Jesus, old covenant to new covenant, uh, God's desire has always been the same. He wants relationship with you. He wants relationship with you as a father to a son, as a father to a daughter. And we come back to this idea of what is the primary metaphor that you use to determine how you relate to God? Is he the king that you're afraid of? Is he the almighty that you're afraid of? Is he the dad who loves you unconditionally, that you are the apple of his eye, you are his treasure, who delights in you, who wants relationship with you? How you view God, the primary metaphor you use, will determine how you approach God. And here's what God's doing with this group of people. He is training them and teaching them how to approach him rightly. Now next week, we're going to look at what it means that God is the Almighty who can obliterate anybody in a moment. But for this week, he's setting the foundation and saying this, the primary way that you relate to me is as a father, as a parent who loves you, you are my treasured possession. And I think Village Church, if this was our primary posture to how we pray to God, relate to God, think of God, it would transform many people's lives. I want to share with you three so what's. Number one, embrace the sufficiency of your heavenly father. So many of us are so angry at our earthly dads. We are allowing ourselves to be bitter. We're transferring to God the sins of our fathers. And what I want to tell you is your your earthly fathers have a, a place and a point and a limit. They have the opportunity to develop your initial God concepts, not your final God concept, just some of your initial default template God concepts. But they're not everything. In fact, God's going to come in and and he's going to actually reframe and reshape your God concept, but know their limitations. Release them from being the perfect dad that they weren't. And understand that you have one heavenly father who ultimately gives you proximity, perspective, and purpose, who loves you, who wants relationship with you beyond anything else. The overall thrust of the New Testament, the overall thrust of the Bible is that the people of God, first and foremost, relate to him as a dad who loves us. Embrace the sufficiency of your heavenly father. When we put it on other people to be the things only God can be to us, we corrupt those relationships and ultimately end up being failed and let down miserably. Only God can be the perfect heavenly father. Give your dads a lot of grace and lean into him who loves you. Number two, Christian live as the child of a perfect Heavenly Father. So I'll say something, and then I'll share with you a story. You are wanted, loved, treasured, and have full access to God if you've placed your faith in Jesus. I was working with a couple many, many years ago, and the husband um, was abused growing up, had a terrible, terrible circumstance. Um, Dad um, communicated to him from a very young age that he was an inconvenience, was never really around, uh, verbally, physically abused, all this stuff. Now he's married, it's years later, and it's a very heavy circumstance, and I don't imagine for a moment that um, 
working with me for a week or a month is going to resolve decades and decades and decades of accrued um, trauma. So we sat one time, and uh, I'd been watching and observing um, how broken he was on so many levels. And he was very honest about it, and we talked about this brokenness, and, and uh, it was a really just good, good set of meetings. Finally, one day, we sat down, and, and I said, can you, can you just play a game with me? I want, you to, I want you to imagine, I want you to go back in time, and I want to tell you your story. But I want to tell you your story from a different angle. I want you to imagine that the day you were born, your dad looked at you and delighted in you. I want you to imagine he stayed with your mom. I want you to imagine that as you grew up, he celebrated and memorialized your first steps and your first words, and and he made a baby book with your mom about you and told everybody about you and was just super excited about you. Uh, I want you to imagine that growing up, the most common words that you heard were, I loved you, I love you, I'm proud of you, I'm so glad you're my son. I want you to imagine he went to your baseball games. I want you to imagine he championed in you your creativity. I want you to imagine that he, he drove you to school and picked you up and had personal conversations and invested in you and cared about what you thought and what you felt. I want you to imagine that when he messed up, he came to you and he said, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? I want you to imagine that he helped you go to college. I want you to imagine that he helped you get your first job and taught you practical life skills. And, and I walked through his entire life up until his late 40s. And he sat there, and I, and I looked at him, and I said, how would, you, how would you be different today? I want you to describe to me who you would be today if that was your story. Light bulbs went off. And he started describing to me who he would be. And immediately, immediately, this guy had a vision of who he could have been. And he saw that he was living as a broken person And for the first time, we began to say, okay, but guess what? Your heavenly father is everything your dad wasn't, and he was always with you. And in that meeting, it's not like his whole life changed right there, but he finally had an understanding and a vision of what it would be like to have a good heavenly father. And one of the challenges I gave to him is, let's learn to live as a beloved, treasured child of God. Because right now, what this is, you're living as an abused person, and that is so devastating. But let's begin this process of figuring out how to live as someone who is treasured by God, loved by God, unconditionally accepted by God, who has access to God, who has proximity, who receives words of truth over his life and his soul from his heavenly Father. And I think there's a lot of Christians who are living in this this brokenness. And I think God wants you to learn to live as if you have an incredible heavenly father who adores you and loves you and treasures you and wants you and wants relationship with you. My third, so what? Trust in Jesus and receive the gift of proximity and perspective and purpose. Some of you are watching this and you're just curious. Some of you are watching this and um, you have been trying to figure out what you think about God. Some of you are watching this and maybe you might even be at a, a home site because a family member dragged you. But I want to challenge you today to place your faith in Jesus who loves you, who died for you, who rose again from the dead who is coming back to make this entire world right, who's given you his Holy Spirit. If you, if you trust in Christ, place your faith in Jesus today. He is offering to forgive you of your sins 
and to offer you adoption as sons and daughters of the Most High, Yahweh, the Almighty. He's giving you the opportunity to be the son or the daughter of God, but this only happens through faith in Christ. Let me ask you, do you believe that you're a sinner who's fallen short of God's glory? Do you believe that you need forgiveness of your sins? Come to Jesus, and he promises you not just forgiveness, not just his Holy Spirit, but he promises to adopt you as a son or a daughter. If that's a decision you want to make today, I just want to encourage you, would you follow up with us? Go to vcob.org forward slash connect. We would actually just love the opportunity to pray with you and resource you and help you take this next step. Now, at this time, what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate communion together. So if you are a, a host at one of our homes, this is a great time for you to go get the elements and get ready for communion. Communion is a practice and a symbol that is for anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus. In a communion, we remember that God has saved us from being slaves, not simply in Egypt, but slaves to sin. And he has redeemed us to relationship with himself that he loves us and treasures us. And as we hold these elements, we are reminded that love has taken action, that greater love has nothing more than this, that one would lay down his life for you. The pinnacle expression of love, God has done that for you. And so as you hold these elements, the the bread is going to symbolize Jesus's body, which was crucified for you. And and the cup is going to symbolize the shed blood of Jesus Christ, shed for you so that you could have the forgiveness of sins. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to have just a time of silence, and it's going to be a time to reflect and to confess and to thank God. And then when we're done with this time of silence, what we'll do is we'll partake of communion and the elements together. Let's have some silence alone with God.